Hey there, and welcome to the Build Me A Brewery podcast. My name is Chris Hayton, and this is part three of the People and Culture Training and Safety segment. In this episode, we heavily dive into the formal training options available across Australia and globally in the brewing industry, where I chat with Young Henry's co-founder and IBA training advocate leader, Richard Adamson, who has been pivotal in the development of the Certificate 3 in microbrewing course here in New South Wales and the Greater National TAFE course framework for the brewing industry here in Oz. And to complement this chat, we are also joined by Director of Online Learning and Faculty Member of the Historic Brewing School, Siebel Institute of Technology, Richard Doobie. In our chat, we discuss the TAFE course offerings now available to those either wishing to get into the brewing industry or to formalise their current skills and experience, apprenticeship options, as well as the role that the Siebel Institute of Technology has played in the training and development of the brewing industry over the past 100 plus years now, and how keen learners can take advantage of its online program and flexible module offering. So I hope you enjoy my chat with Richard Adamson and Richard Doobie. Well, welcome to the Build Me A Brewery podcast, Rich Adamson and Rich Dubey. Thanks for having us. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having us. And so, Rich Adamson, you're based here in Sydney, being one of the founders from Young Henry's. Uh, Rich Dubey, you're over in the US, uh, in Florida, so it's beer o'clock your way. And just wanted to give the audience a bit of background of what our chat here today is going to be about. So this is going to form part of our people and culture and, and training and safety topics. So heavily focused today on the formal training options that uh, I guess are available to those either looking at getting into the brewing industry or looking at formalizing their current skills and experience if they're, they're currently working in the industry. And yeah, just also to provide some insights and options to those who have come from backyard brewing backgrounds and think it's a, a cool idea to start a brewery and you know, I, I tend to laugh at those guys, me being one of them, <laughs> without any industry experience and, and, you know, looking at trying to understand the commercial side because there is quite a, a transition there. But before we get into all that, I'd like to, I guess, get to know you guys a bit better, understand your career backgrounds to date, uh, maybe some fun facts about, you know, preferred beer styles or, or even breweries. Uh, Rich, Rich Adamson, if you know you're young Henry's founder and you're always going to be talking that one first, but if there's any others that stand out to you, <laughs> any others that stand out to you, um, keen to hear that. But maybe uh, Rich Doobie, if you uh, want to kick it off first, mate. Sure, no problem. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to make it short, but I'm not very good at that. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously an old geezer. I'm a microbiologist biochemist, and I started back in 1980 uh, as a young microbiologist for Molson in Canada, and then spent five years with them in quality control and actually a stint in research for a couple of years, uh, and uh, moved to Labatt's. And with Labatt's, uh, I ended up uh, on the production training, uh, and I ended up uh, in, the, in more managerial role as a uh, assistant packaging manager in Montreal, and then assistant brewer in uh, London, Ontario. And then we moved to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I became the quality control manager, and then the brewmaster uh, in Halifax. Um, so that brings us to about 93. Uh, got a call from a company that you might know, uh, Boston Beer Company. And that's how we moved from Canada to the United States, where I took the responsibilities of uh, 
of uh, research and development and quality control for Boston Beer Company. Move a little bit forward, uh, spend, spend another eight years or so with Boston Beer Company, move to the Midwest uh, in Cincinnati where Boston Beer Company had just purchased their first, uh, their first brewery, which was at the time beautiful Shenling. And uh, so now that makes 20 years in the brewing industry already. And uh, I'll be frank, if you ask my wife, she will tell you that I had a midlife crisis. So uh, I kind of uh, partially left the industry, uh, did a master in arts of teaching and taught uh, high school science for 10 years. I kept the pulse uh, on the industry uh, via actually Siebel, where I was uh, teaching and uh, started developing our uh, online program. Uh, after 10 years, uh, I got the call back to, uh, to rejoin the industry and I was the uh, brewmaster for a uh, huge guest pub being built uh, along the Ohio River, smack between the two uh, professional stadium of baseball on one side and football on the other side. Uh, so I came back to the industry to start that, and I had a, a great time. And then slowly but surely, and that's my problem, I, I end up into production, and I became the vice president, production quality. And one morning I woke up and I said, mm, no, this is not why I came back to the industry. So I left that. And in a matter of, and I'm not kidding, in a matter of hours, uh, I got two phone calls, one from Siebel, who was offering me to take uh, everything that is online because a few years prior, they had asked me to become the director of education, but it would have meant for us to move to Chicago. And my wife and I, we said, enough moving, we're not going anywhere. So I, I kind of declined that offer. Uh, but this time around, they were looking for some somebody who could deal with everything that is online, which meant that I could stay at home and just come to Chicago once in a while. And the other call that I got was to become the co-founder of a brewery that, uh, that we opened. Uh, we just celebrated our sixth year anniversary uh, in uh, Norton, Kentucky, in Covington called Braxton. So uh, it, it moved pretty quickly. So right now I have a little bit of the dual role of uh, co-founder, brewmaster at Braxton and director of online education at Siebel. That's my story. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, and that, and that was why I was excited to have you, you on as well. And I guess I wanted to explore that angle along with, with, with Richard Adamson, with, with TAFE and, and the other options here in, in, in Australia. But a few fun facts about you, Rich Doobie. Favorite breweries, favorite beers? Uh, have you sampled uh, anything over here in, in, in Oz at all? Or? Uh, well, right now, right now I'm drinking this. Uh, this is from, uh, where we don't see it, but this is from... Uh, this is from our brewery. Uh, this is called Summer Trip. It's a uh, Berliner Weiss style beer, passion fruit. Uh, so a kind of a 36 hours kettle souring and, and then we go with it. It's very enjoyable when it's uh, very warm and humid. But uh, I would say, and I've always replied that, <clears throat> is, is that uh, if you are stuck on a deserted island and you can get only one beer, uh, my go-to beer is still uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. It's, yeah, well, it, it never fails. Never, never fails. I can tell you stories about other brewers without naming them. That, uh, and I think we we might get into this, but uh, uh, beers that are very good on on location, but absolutely does not travel well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I I could give you 
<laughs> offline some 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 uh, some examples of beer that actually they are very very good on site they they develop a very very good following partially through marketing uh, but uh, absolutely does not very travel very very well but Sierra Nevada never 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 uh, never uh, disappoint so that's my go-to beer if you will yeah well it's starting to become a lot more accessible for us over here in a lot of our local bottle shops actually so you're seeing the little four pack box yeah. so yeah every now and then I'll I'll grab a grab a four pack but yeah good rich adamson uh tell us a bit about uh, i guess your humble beginnings and where you are today in in the industry uh yeah much more of um of a happenstance i think than um than fellow richard so i i guess i left school uh playing in a rock band i was playing keyboards in a rock band and thought that that was going to be my life and didn't really have much of a a plan for for education or or career other uh, other than that uh, so I studied politics and psychology at uni and um, didn't make much money as a, as a rock musician. So ended up working in IT. It was something that I could do. And there was a, a massive need as um, people, you know, the birth of the internet sort of happened. Uh, and did that for about seven years. Ended up working in a, um, a software company that did cryptography. So went through the dot-com boom and bust. Lost my passion for, for IT. Uh, wasn't having much fun. After that, and uh, there was a course at, at Ballarat University at the time for for brewing, and I'd, I'd always been an avid home brewer. And my um, my brother-in-law Scott Morgan, who was the head brewer at Rocks, convinced me to do it. And I thought, well, the, the very least my home brew would get better. And ended up founding Barons Brewing in 2005. After that, left IT and forged a new career, my third career, which was followed by Young Henry's in. 2011, 2012. So Young Henry's is now nine years old. I guess the uh, the education part was also a bit of an accident, and that was because I, I opened my big mouth. Um, essentially, I was a, at a, a business breakfast at uh, New South Wales Parliament House, and the then Premier uh, sat next to me and asked me what the challenges of the industry was, and, and I said education was a big one. We we were a growing industry, but we we're having trouble getting qualified brewers uh, and that the pathways for education were quite limited in the country at the time, other than Ballarat, which is now Federation University and uh, a short course over at Edith Cowan in WA, there wasn't many options. I said, look, it should be taught in TAFE. There should be a, a pathway through apprenticeships. He, he agreed and he said, send me an email, which I did. I thought nothing more of it, uh, but I got a call from head of TAFE six weeks later saying that I've been told to make this happen. Wow. Uh, I threw, uh, I threw Neil Cameron under the bus, um, <laughs> who, who was at the time was, uh, was doing the Cicerone training. I thought he would be the right guy to get this up and running. And I guess I, I, he'd been working on it for a while and I gave him a call and asked him how he was doing and whether he needed some help. And he said he desperately needed some help. So I, I decided to do the, the training and um, assessment certificate for so I could help him help him teach. And I've been doing that now for five years. And that I guess that also led me to take the role in the Independent Brewing Association of looking after the, the people project, which encompasses uh, training and education as, as part of it as well. So that's a lesson to you. Um, you know, if you if you open your open your mouth and complain, um, you might find yourself as part of the solution. <laughs> Yeah, no, I recall, um, not sure if you've had the chance, Chadamson, uh, 
listening to a, an earlier episode in the podcast, I had, I had Neil Cameron on actually, and he referred to this story where, you know, you seem to um, socialize in different social circles that he does um, and somehow sat down next to Mike Baird and, and that's where it all started from. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't really sure what I was doing at Parliament House. I, I got the, <laughs> got the um, invitation, dusted, dusted off the suit jacket, and, and headed in, and was uh, you know sitting at a table of captains of industry, and I sort of felt like a fish out of water. But uh, I guess you know, good thing came from it. Mm. I, I don't know if I re- referenced to it in an earlier episode, but uh, I'm, I'm actually one of one of your students at TAFE New South Wales. I'm I've started that uh, over the last couple of months, and can honestly say it, it is a, a top course especially with all the work components in it so without spoiling that now we'll, we'll definitely go into more about that course and and the TAFE options but um, uh, any favorite beers or beer styles or breweries other than Young Henry's? It's, it's such a difficult one I, I, I definitely share the love for Sierra Nevada Parallel as well I think that was a revelation beer but going going back to the early days I think and a couple really caught my imagination would have been Timothy Taylor, landlord, sort of English, English bitter, and the whole cast beer and hand pop. I was I always had a fascination for just a really different way of serving what I you know what we think of beer and what, what the English people think of beer is very different. I think, and you know you hear a lot of people complaining about flat, warm pints, but it's um, it's 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 a thing of beauty when you when you get it right. And then I think some of the you know some of the Belgium. Uh, styles, I think, are just really fascinating as well. It just really calls into question what beer was for me as a as a young person ex- experimenting with beer. And I think, and I think for the craft beer revolution, I think a lot of those Belgian beers are really forgotten and definitely worth revisiting. Yeah, I've mentioned during the podcast because a gap in my learning is Belgian beers. I haven't had too many. I know Dan Dan Murphy's stock a, a couple triples and, and trappist beers but yeah you don't see a lot of i mean rich both of you guys might correct me wrong or rich adamson um is there a lot of breweries out here making those styles of beers i think they have gone got, got out of fashion i think you know we've we've been caught up with hops as the star of the show a lot of yeah. the time and i think there's a there's a whole different expression of beer that is maybe getting forgotten with all the, the terrific yeast that can be used there to Express different flavors. You know, even from the, you know, from Hefeweizen to, you know, German Hefeweizen to Belgian wit being both wheat beers, but completely different expressions of, of what beer could be through yeast. Yeah. yeah on, the, on, the, uh, on this continent, you have to go, uh, you have to go in Quebec. Uh, Quebec has, has a tremendous amount of uh, wonderful Belgium, uh, Belgian beers or Belgium style beers. Uh, and I'm dealing especially right now with with a brewery in in Charlevoix in Quebec uh, that really specialize into the Belgium styles. And I believe that you know to a certain extent is that uh, and I, I think we might go into this uh, later on, but you know it's uh, Belgian Belgian beer to a certain extent requires a much more uh, attention and much more time to produce. And so therefore those who jump into the uh, into the craft, Beer Revolution, and I'm talking about the first one that I went through in the uh, uh, early 80s, 90s or so. Didn't have time to to uh, to sit down on that. They wanted to be quick, quick, quick. So, so yeah, it has been a little bit of a forgotten style. Uh, but uh, 
there's some people out there that does really, really nice stuff. Yeah. Mm. And you mentioned, um, Rich Adamson, about real ale. That's another thing that, you know, mm. you just don't see over That's here. Good. And I'd love to see a brewery do that. It's been something I've even considered to just separate myself from all the breweries that are popping up is figuring out a way to master the real ale side and bring it over here. Because you see so many big punters say, even James Smith from Crafty Pint, how much he missed real ale from when he immigrated from the UK to here in Australia, you know, it's just, yeah. So. I, I, I can tell you it's a tough thing to do. It was, you know, mm-hmm. Real uh, Ale was one of the first beers that we made and it's it's a beer that we no longer make because it's just, I guess, the hop, again, hops have become the um, expression that most people are into and a more malt-driven style, although it had, it definitely had its ardent fans and people do do really ask me to bring it back all the time, but if uh, if it was on tap or on 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 hand pump, and we had the option of putting that on Newtown or on Newtown, it would always sell four times as much. Mm. If you can keep if you can keep control, it's it's you know if you can stay in your tap room, uh, you might be able to handle it. You know, on a smaller scale, but especially here in the United States, anyway, as soon as it leaves your brewery, uh, you lose total control. I mean, even if you try training distributors and so on and so forth it, it becomes almost impossible but i'm yeah. totally with you guys you know there's nothing else than going somewhere in england into a small dark woody uh, uh pub and then have a, a the hand pump and have that nice that nice uh, you know the room temperature pint i mean there's there's absolutely nothing like it really yeah like it. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks, guys. It's, I guess, good to understand your backgrounds and how you've come to where you are in the industry. And uh, I guess diving into, I guess, the main purpose of our chat today, and and that is, uh, I guess, discussing the formal training options available to, I guess, people in the industry wishing to get in the industry, those wanting to start a brewery. You know, training is definitely uh, an important aspect that these sort of aspiring brewery owners need to be considering. Me doing this podcast has has inspired me to to formalise my training, doing the the TAFE New South Wales Cert Three Microbrewing course. But Rich Doobie, um, you coming from the Siebel Institute, that's a, mm-hmm. a very interesting perspective, and that's why I wanted to get you on to sort of complement the options that we have here in Australia, because obviously people can access your online training platform anywhere in the world. And especially with COVID, everything seems to be moving that way. So the access of information seems to be a lot greater these days. But uh, are you able to tell the audience a bit about Siebel or the Siebel Institute of Technology to be exact? Yeah, just go into a bit of detail about the history of it, you know, your role and course offerings. Uh, Take it away, mate. Absolutely. Um, first of all, it, it's, it's with all due respect to every, everybody else that is there that is now uh, into brewing education field, if you will. But to me, when I'm talking about, about the, the, the more traditional established uh, institute or brewing school, uh, I'm talking about uh, in North America, in, in actually the Americas, I'm talking about Siebel Institute of Technology. And I will go back to give you a little bit of background behind it. Then you move across the pond and you go to London and you go to the IBD, or in my days, it was the IOB, uh, the Institute of Brewing and Distilling. Then you move a little bit further east to uh, Munich, where you have Domen's Academy. Uh, you have Feinhans uh, Stefan. Uh, and then further, further east, you go to VLB, 
uh, in Berlin. So when we're talking about, you know, long time tradition, growing science schools, those are the ones. We know that in the past uh, 20, 25 years, and again, with all due respect with the programs that they have been, that have been developed, uh, we know we now have uh, schools from, you know, UC Davis to a different uh, college here in the United States and in Canada that popped up with some program. So if I just go back to Siebel, with Siebel, basically, you know, we've been teaching brewers or future brewers for over 140 years. Uh, not me personally, maybe even if I even look at that. <laughs> but um, it, it started back in 1868 with Dr. John Ewald Siebold. And if you're looking at the forefathers, if you will, of the American brewing history, uh, you, you have names like, let's say, Bush and, and, uh, and Strohs. But you also include uh, Siebel, John Siebel, because uh, he came to, to the country in 1845 from Germany did his degree in engineering, I, I believe. Uh, and then in 1868, he founded the Zamotechnik Institute. And the same year, he opened the John Siebel Laboratory that quickly developed into a research station and a um, school for brewing sciences. Um, if we move a little bit uh, forward, they moved to a new location in 1872. And that's when on the north side of Chicago, and that's when uh, he changed the name to Siebel Institute of Technology. So Siebel Institute of Technology goes back to 1872, if you will. Move a little bit forward. Now you're in 1907 or so, uh, and Siebel is offering five different uh, courses to brewers, to postgraduate brewers, to engineering uh, engineers, to maltsters, and to bottlers. Uh, and then as, as they got closer to the Prohibition, Siebel Institute kind of uh, diversified into refrigeration, engineering, baking, uh, milling, and a whole slew of other carbonated beverages. At the time, and that's what the story says, is that uh, Dr. John Ewald Siebel uh, was so desperate uh, about hearing about the uh, uh, about the prohibition, he could not fathom the idea. He actually died uh, 27 days before the prohibition became became official. Uh, so that's what the story is. Actually, he was really dis destroyed by the idea of prohibition. So we keep on moving, and now we're in 1952, where uh, uh, Siebel was moved to Peterson Avenue, uh, where we stayed basically for almost uh, 50 years. From there. We move a little stint to Clybourne, where we had a very close partnership with Goose Island uh, Brew Pub that was just across the street. So we had actually a, a classroom in their facilities. And uh, we moved to Kendall College in 2013. And finally, last year, despite the pandemic and everything, we moved to our uh, brand new location uh, on the uh, what we call the West Loop of Chicago in Greektown. Very, very nice, uh, very, very nice, vibrant, vibrant area for us. And, and what you see back uh, behind me is uh, one of our one of our classrooms. So that's a little bit the story of, of Stiebel. You know, we've uh, been teaching brewers from all over the world uh, for over 140 years. Yeah, well, okay. And in terms of course offerings, so from my understanding, you've got full full suite of courses where someone will get 
a certificate or a diploma upon completion, but you've also got this sort of pick and choose type system mm-hmm. where, you know, if a brewery owner wants to understand how to properly clean his tanks and do CIP, he can jump on your website and, and pick that module and do that. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. When you look at our offering, we obviously have, uh, again, uh, my virtual background show you the classroom. So we obviously have campus offerings, but we also have uh, online uh, offerings. And and one first thing I want to to say uh, to, to your audience is for them to understand that campus and online, despite the fact that it's obviously a different delivery system. I mean, you have an instructor in front of you live, uh, you know, versus being online where you're in front of your computer. But that what we call the depth of knowledge is, is exactly the same. And this is something that actually we have to prove to the Department of Education, of higher education here in Illinois, that we are providing exactly the same depth of knowledge. So it's the same material delivered differently. That's granted. Uh, but even the assessments are are at the same level. So somebody that shows a certificate of completion for, let's say, the concise course campus versus somebody online, uh, we know that they have exactly the same depth of knowledge. Okay. So when we look at our offering, and that's something I didn't mention, but it's very important to to make a point here, is that back in 2001, Tebow got into a partnership with Domans. Domans Academy in uh, in Germany. And that goes under the umbrella of what we call the World Brewing Academy. So when you see World Brewing Academy, uh, it is Siebel and Doman. So it's what we call the dual campus. But this is what allow us to claim uh, rightfully that we have courses that are, uh, that are all over the world. People would come to Chicago for a while and then move to Domans to complete their uh, certificate or their diploma, if you will. Aside from, aside from campus, uh, as I said, we have online. And, and again, here, what's important to point out is that uh, we have been online for 20 years. Okay, So online, uh, online Siebel or World Brewing Academy uh, online didn't, didn't come out of the pandemic, uh, pandemic uh, period that we just uh, went through. Uh, we have been uh, there for, for 20 years, and I think we we were the first one uh, online to offer some brewing courses of, uh, of different levels. Talking about levels, we have three different levels. We have the entry level, uh, we have the intermediate level, and then the advanced level. And the analogy that I use is that, uh, you know, all those courses teach one thing, beer production processes, okay? But it depends how deep you go in the knowledge and how much the details you go. So. It's like, you know, yes, I'm a math teacher, but I'm a, I'm a math teacher, a first grade math teacher versus a high school high school math teacher. So that's how it's math, but obviously the depth is totally different. So to give you an idea, when we say beer, beer production processes, we start from raw material to brewing engineering and absolutely everything in between, right? So for the executive, well, the entry level, we call it the executive, the executive overview of the brewing process, you have 17 lectures or 17 topics. You go to the concise, uh, that is the intermediate level. Now for the same peer production processes, you have 33 individual lectures or topics. And then when you move to the advanced level, 
again the same the same core book knowledge, uh, but you have over a hundred different specific individual topics to cover the same kind of uh, uh, knowledge, if you will. But it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I guess I think maybe one of my later on questions is about getting an understanding of, I guess. The, the core group of students like which walks of the industry are they coming from are they coming from wanting to get into the industry or is there quite a lot of people who are already in the industry wanting to further their learning so but yeah that's a, I guess a great overview of, of what you guys do and and um, and that's exactly what I'm trying to offer my audience um, all those different options available to them but Rich Adamson you've, you've been waiting there patiently ready to talk a bit about TAFE New South Wales or, or TAFE in general, obviously being a, a national network of, of campuses. Uh, are you able to tell us a bit about, um, I guess, the brewing options in terms of training for people here in Australia from a TAFE perspective? Yeah, look, the, the reason I think that, that TAFE uh, is important and it, it, it plays a slightly different role, I think, is it maps into the Australian Qualifications Framework or AQF. So if you, if you look at the different levels of um, education available, an AQF level sort of indicates the, the cognitive, technical and communication skills required to complete that course. And if we look at Certificate 3, that's a, that's a level 3. So that's a fairly entry-level form of education. and It, it, it doesn't have any prerequisites to, um, to get into. Uh, if there are any prerequisites, they are um, encapsulated within the course. And it kind of focuses more on vocational education being hands-on practical workplace skills. So um, it's, it's probably less theoretical and more about how to do things rather than maybe, you know, we give you a bit of, bit of background in terms of why you do things, but it's probably, it probably stops short of analysing and evaluating um, and transmitting knowledge, um, more about giving you the skill sets to, to do things. The other important thing about the TAFE system and the Certificate 3 is that it, because it maps to the Australian Qualifications Framework and is delivered through, through TAFE, it maps onto the trainees and apprenticeship schemes that are available. So if you are accepted as a trainee or an apprentice in a, in a business and you sign up to a training program, uh, there's a whole bunch of incentives that are available to both um, the, the trainee and the employer. And what happens in New South Wales is we managed to get the um, certificate three on the smart and skilled list uh, because it does have a, a pathway into getting people into the industry and getting them a job. Uh, it means that the, the qualification cost comes down dramatically. So it, it would be $9,000, but it goes down to $1,000 uh, for a first um, tertiary qualification. And I think it's just over $2,500 for a second tertiary qualification because it's on that list. And there's a lot more uh, incentives now for, for taking on trainees for employers as well. So you get payroll tax exemption. I think you get actually get paid money from, on milestones as well. And the, the student qualifies for the student card, which gives you a discount for travel and a whole bunch of other things. So that's really the advantage of, of, um, of putting the education through this system. We're working on certificate four as well. So we managed to get that qualification approved. Um, we also in New South Wales got it onto the smart and skilled list. It's now about writing the material. And the certificate four is aimed for head brewers, production managers, or, or business owners. So you know we're going to go more in depth on the brewing side, but we're also going to couple that with business skills. So 
whether it be some basic form of accounting, management, leadership, those type of skills that should go along with your brewing skills to be an effective manager within the brewery. That's exciting. I wasn't aware of that. Now, Rich Adamson, how would you rate, I guess, the current standard of of formal training options available in the Australian, I guess, brewing industry of years of past uh, to now in modern times? You know, obviously, there's been a, a bit of more of an awareness in recent years, especially from a a TAFE perspective and government funding of those courses in the industry. But I guess talk about the the training options as a whole in the industry. Do you think that we still have a little bit of, I guess, room to to improve in that space? Most definitely. We're getting there. I think through having Certificate 3 run in New South Wales and having successful outcomes for students that you know, most people that I think have done the course have, have gone in and worked within the industry. And the fact that the industry has grown as well, we're demonstrating that we are a big employer within Australia, the, the craft brewing industry particularly. So you know, half the jobs in, in brewing come from the craft brewers. And as an employer, we're, we're getting towards you know, 7,000 7, jobs. And hopefully we can double that over the next five years. So there is a need to educate people. And, and I think politicians and people within the, um, the bureaucracy is seeing that it's worth investing in that education as well. So we will. I'm, I'm pretty confident we'll see more TAFEs across the country um, start offering the course. So you know, and I think the great thing about the education available through Siebel and, and IBD is that it's it's modular. Um, people can take their own time doing it. It's probably uh, a, a less formal type of education. In terms of its its timing, certainly certainly formal in terms of the way they go about delivering the course and um, and the qualifications are definitely well recognised throughout the throughout the world. It's it's a matter of people accessing the education they think that's appropriate to them. Totally different system of education, if you will. You know, you you I think what my understanding is like most of all the other university and college that offers brewing science. It's it's part of a it's part of a, a, a diploma or certificate, meaning that you have all those other courses that forms, you know, the, what the requirements of the educational system uh, wants to have that fits on into a certificate. Whereas SIBO, uh, for instance, uh, it is we do have pre-requirements because we don't want to, we want people to succeed. Uh, so therefore, we want to make sure that <clears throat> sorry that they go into the right level of, of uh, of depth of knowledge, if you will, uh, but you know anybody can can jump in. You, know, you don't need a bachelor's degree or even don't need a high school diploma. You know, as long as you have what it takes to get into the different the different levels. So it's two totally different uh, two totally different approach. Absolutely. Well, I also think there's a, there's that opportunity <clears throat> for specialization within the, um, the the private education or what you know um, system as well. So. I know um, when Dan was working at Young Henry's, um, Dan McCulloch, um, while yeah. I was working at Young Henry's, he was um, he was our quality manager, and he was very keen to do the civil course because it was going to give him the tools to um, put together a quality program and um, have the depth of knowledge for microbiology that he, he required. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we might be talking about that later, but there's there's a kind of a there's a I call it the à la carte, uh, à la carte offering that we have that uh, 
really fits the bill in a very specific kind of uh, structure that uh, I wouldn't mind, you know, spending a few uh, a few seconds to talk about as well, Chris. Yeah. Do you want to actually talk a bit about that? What you just mentioned? Yeah. Let's focus on online online education. I think that campus is fairly obvious. You come to Chicago or you go to uh, to Dortmund in Germany, and you're in a classroom, and and especially in Germany, then then you have all the hands on as well. But when when it comes down to to online, uh, it's obviously it's a different environment. However, we have created a brand new platform that we launched uh, just a year ago, uh, where we try to have as much interactivity as possible. Uh, meaning that you know we have video chats. Uh, the, the lectures themselves they're not a run through video that you might end up falling asleep on it. It forces the the learner to click different things to open different windows, you know, so they, they kind of stay, stay a little bit more uh, focused on the material. But we have two different formats, and that's kind of important when, when you know, the, uh, the, the audience tried to decide, okay, which way do I want to go? Uh, what type of learners am I? And so uh, we have what we call in the educational lingo, we have a synchronous environment, and we have an asynchronous environment. In different terms, we call it uh, synchronous. We call it a tutored session, uh, tutored course, I should say. And the asynchronous, we call it an open session. The difference is that for a tutored course, for instance, let's call it the uh, WA concise course, which is the intermediate level. The course is offered three times a year. So it starts on a specific date, like the next session starts on May 3rd, and will end 11 weeks later. I guess it's very fixed. Okay? So you have to be there during those 11 weeks. And during those 11 weeks, they are tutored. Tutored means that you have someone that is there to support your efforts, to answer your questions, to have a weekly video chats uh, with predetermined topics uh, and to answer any questions that you may have, to make sure that you progress at, the, at a definite pace. Uh, and they are there to uh, receive, review, grade, and comment on your quizzes that are mini essays type. Okay, uh, and they, they're basically they're there to guide you to uh, be successful at the final exam at the end of those eleven weeks, versus a open session where you can enroll at any time during the year. So it's basically I call it pay and learn. So you pay for the course, and within uh, ten minutes. You have your credentials, the access to the to the platform, and you can start uh, you can start working on the material. Uh, you're not all by yourself, though. There's still a monitor that is there to answer any question that might uh, that you might have that are related to the lectures lectures themselves. Those those courses or those access are are generally much shorter, uh, like five weeks. Uh, but again. The, the biggest benefit of online is that you work at your own pace, you progress at your own pace, you don't have to travel, uh, and, and you still have access to a certain level of live uh, interaction, if you will. In the tutor courses, we started that and it became very popular, is that we have what we call guided lectures. So we take one of the lectures that is, that is in the curriculum of the course, and we invite a content expert to actually present the lecture uh, via Zoom. Uh, so people come in, they participate, 
And the beauty is that, you know, just like you're doing right now, you record it. Those that could not participate because of scheduling conflicts or whatever, it's recorded. I upload it straight on the on the e-learning platform, and then the others, uh, the other uh, students can uh, view the recording at their own uh, their own leisure, if you will. Yeah, well, uh, what I I think is very important and it's becoming more of a growing trend is in learning is obviously that online platform ability for for students and i think it offers greater flexibility and uh i think rich rich adamson and and dan mccollick doing the tafe new south wales course have have commented on it It, they get greater attendance when they do it online because people are working in the industry or they're they're working other full-time jobs and yeah they're they're able to do it in the own leisure of their own home so mm. exactly then and that goes into Who's our audience? And, and the spectrum is actually pretty, very wide. I mean, you have people that are considering to get into commercial brewing. You have some people that have already been in the industry for a while, and they finally figured out what actually Richard kind of alluded to earlier, is that I know how to do things, uh, but I don't necessarily know why I'm doing it. And me, I have that saying that uh, a brewer is a glorified janitor with great problem-solving skills. And, and <laughs> to do that, you have to have the knowledge that goes behind, okay, I opened this valve when this happens and that kind of stuff, right? And I, I think that, that this, is, this is that angle that we provide. And there's more and more employers that realize that, that they realize that when they have a, a guy or a gal on the brew deck, they want that person to be able to problem to to solve the problem by themselves because they know all the background so that leads me to uh, to uh, our latest offering we call them specialized lectures they are actually taken from the advanced level and they become a perfect addition to and, and actually I'm going to use our own uh, my own experience as as you know the co-founder of that brewery in northern Kentucky is that we have we have knowledgeable people uh, but we realized that, okay, the person that is in QC would, would need to know a little bit more about microbiology, for instance. Okay? So not that we don't want them to know about malting or brewing, but really what will help them on, on, on their daily routine work and what will help me and as employers is for them to get better in quality control, right? So instead of, instead of having to pay a, a large amount of money to send them on a course that will cover all the beer production processes, I can pick and choose specific lectures that pertains to quality control, interpretation of beer analysis, uh, microbiology and brewing, uh, detection of contaminants, whatever, whatnot, right? And then let's say you, Chris, you're in packaging. Well, again, you, not that I don't want you not to know about brewing, but really what I need you to know is how to run that canning line, right? Uh, and understand what dissolved oxygen is and carbonation and all that, well, then there's a lecture for that. There's a lecture on principle of canning, and there's a, a lecture on carbonation and so on and so forth. So you can extrapolate that and someone in maintenance or somebody in brewing or somebody in, in, in the cellar, you as an employer, you don't have the money to send everybody for two weeks on campus or to have them tied up for 11 weeks with tests and an assignment and all that, but you have enough money to, okay, Chris, I'm going to pay you. I'm going to give you, you know, two or three lectures for you and two or three lectures for Richard and maintenance and 
a couple more lecture for you in uh, in packaging and whatever whatnot. So this is what we call our specialized lecture. It's somebody that is already there, already working in that environment that really need to know about glycol fundamentals or need to know about steam fundamentals. That's what they need on their day-to-day -day work. Uh, so for the employer, it's it becomes a very specific formation that they can provide to their employees. And we know that, you know, employees, the employees that are more knowledgeable, they're happier in what they do. They're more, they feel more secure about what they do. Uh, so they get more enjoyment about what they do. And then they stick around uh, with you. So, you know, that's the whole concept of those uh, specialized lectures. Yeah. No, I, I love the um, the concept of being able to pick and choose different modules. And like you said, as you get bigger and bigger, you you create these more specialized teams within your business. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's important to, you know, for for those specialists to, to get formalized with it and to be able to, and even when you get as big as say, you know, like your Stone and Woods and, um, and, and even, you know, like Young Henry's as well as small to medium sized breweries, it's, making sure that people in packaging know what's going on in brewing. They don't need to be as, as an expert as the brewers, but they have that crossover department training. And we've talked a little bit about that now, people, people in culture episodes about the importance of, you know, making sure sales know sort of have a, a fair idea of what's going on on the brewery floor so they can better develop those relationships and, and, and sell the product. So, yeah, I think it's very important. And those, that concept there can help sort of, like you said, pick and choose and, uh, and so forth. But Richard Adamson, and um, like we were talking earlier on this, this whole dynamic of having two Richards, it's, it's um, I, I don't always like, I feel like I'm your mother and I'm, t I'm, I'm talking to you in your full name, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, but I have to give the audience an understanding of who I'm talking to. So, but Rich A, if I can refer to that, you mentioned a bit about apprenticeships and traineeships and the, the government funding with the Smart Skill Program. Are we seeing a lot more of those opportunities coming up in the brewing industry, like actual breweries taking on apprentices and trainees? Absolutely. And I think part of the issue before, like uh, now, was probably there wasn't a pathway for that form, for the formal education, but also there probably wasn't an understanding that, that apprenticeships and trainees were, were available to access as well. So if anyone's looking to employ someone and think an apprenticeship or a trainee would be the right way to go, jump online and look at the apprenticeships network. And there's a, a network provider, uh, which is a, a, a free service, and they will run through whether the, the person you're um, looking to employ qualifies as a, um, as a trainee and then what, it, what incentives are available to you as an employer. Uh, it's, it's a free offering. Um, if it does work out that um, the person qualifies, then you sign up to a, train, um, a training program which is an agreement between yourself and the government and the, and the, the trainee that, that says that the person you're employing won't just be put on the, um, on the dream crusher, cleaning <laughs> kegs and filling kegs, but they'll get a good rounded education across the, across the brewery and get some hands-on skills across different aspects of the, 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 the brewing process and sign up to the um, formal education as well. Mm. Do you see this being a push towards the schooling system as well? I mean, you always get kids being pushed to do carpentry apprenticeships, electrical apprenticeships or anything like that. Do you, do you see the, the sort of attraction to people entering the industry more 
sort of in their mid to late twenties and 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 older, or do you think there's an opportunity to sort of capture eighteen year olds leaving school wanting to start a career in the brewing industry? I think we're seeing people come to the industry from a variety of of different walks of life and different stages in their um in their career as well. So we are definitely getting people doing a a sea change, uh, changing from different careers and, and different industries. We are seeing more people taking it, uh, seeing it as a uh, as a career pathway as well from um, from earlier. So I think yeah, we're seeing young, you know, early twenties people getting into the industry, and we've seen a lot a lot of older people enter it as well. So I think that's good. I think um, having people come from different industries in, into the brewing industry is a good thing. Different different perspective, fresh perspective, but it's also a viable career path as well to start working in a brewery and get that formal education behind you and take it from there. I think the great thing about that, having that education is it it will travel with you. You can travel the world and work in in, in different breweries across the world. Mm, Yeah. I've worked in the recruitment space for apprenticeships. I used to supply a lot of apprentices all over um, New South Wales. And I always recall that there's got to be a certain number of qualified people in that business to be able to take on an, an apprentice or, you know, there's got to be a ratio or so forth. Is that a, a challenge in the brewing industry and brewery owners not being formalized or, or having that, you know, actual formal training or qualifications being able to take on apprentices or is there sort of like a level of competency that's sort of assessed um, at those sort of moments when they register an apprentice? I think we're, what we're doing is, is recognising the learning that would come from a CBL or an IBD quite often. So um, most established breweries will have someone within um, the organisation that has gone through that education. It's definitely something we're, we're seeing and people wouldn't be able to operate their breweries without that, that backing to start with, I think. So it's not necessary that they go through that AQF system to be recognised as, um, as someone who can take on a, an apprentice. Mm. Yeah, great. Other Richard, Richard Doobie. <laughs> I was looking at Siebel's website before our chat and obviously having a look at your, I guess, different course offerings. Uh, I've noticed that you've also got a, an online store where you offer like sensory kits and other tools mm-hmm. for, for people in learning. Are you able to talk a bit about that? Sure. Sensory kits, actually, we've been doing that for quite a while and we always kind of developing new flavors, if you will. As you certainly can can understand is that uh, even when you open your, your own brewery, you don't have millions to start getting a, a GC, a gas chromatograph and all that. So at the end of the day, the most important thing is your sensory evaluation, your organoleptic uh, evaluation. And uh, to be able to uh, be able to assess your beer, uh, one, you have to have the same language. Uh, and those uh, those kits allows you to train your people. Uh, you know, when we get into sensory evaluation, our uh, our taste ability, either uh, either nasal or retronasal or through the uh, taste buds, uh, varies tremendously uh, over age, over health, or incidents or whatever, whatnot. So we we say that it's very important to train your people. Number one, to uh, to have the same language. So when we say diacetyl, I know exactly what, what you're talking about. Mm. Uh, we're not denying the fact that, and that's the way it goes. You smell something, it gets into one of your receptors, sends a signal to your brain, and the brain says, oh, this is my grandfather basement, right? Okay, well, <laughs> if you say that to the to the taste panel, 
you're going to say, okay, that's fine. Well, what the heck is that, right? Well, but for you, the grandfather, your grandfather basement is that is that moldy, earthy uh, smell that you remember, right? So the brain makes a connection with somebody that you remember. It's just that you need to make sure that you put a name to this so that everybody has the same language. The second benefit of those sensory kits is to make sure that you uh, identify who's good at what. Take diacetylpondensin. There's 10% of the population that absolutely cannot taste nor smell uh, diacetyl, where it's important to know which in your group is, is, uh, is in that 10%, uh, because when Joe says that it, there's no diacetyl and it's a diacetyl bomb, well, then you're saying, well, thank you, Joe, for your comment, but we, we won't rely on you, on you for that one. But conversely, Joe is very, very good for DMS or sulfury compounds or whatever, whatnot. So it's very important to train your people and to train it, you know, this, is, this is a little bit more, I would say, a personal opinion, but, uh, you know, you should, you, should have, you should recalibrate your people uh, at least once a year. Okay? And you create a map of what is being detected and at what intensity it's being detected. And so those sensory kits that we sell, we sell, you know, the, the basic flavors and then the more complex one and the defects and and the uh, barrel age and so on and so forth. So you can really bring people to appreciate the same character, but also naming them the same way. And that's what makes the power of a sensory evaluation is to mm. be able to talk with the same language. Yeah. yeah. I recall doing the lab day at Young Henry's actually, Mitch Adamson and Renee, the lab manager, was sort of going around the brewery floor and, yeah, getting people to sort of just sniff this. One's the diacetyl, one's not, and just getting them to sort of compare the two. And I thought that was a very good way of keeping people sharp as to what what they should be noticing in terms of the off flavors. So um, yeah, yeah, yes, it's very important. But Rich, you've uh, Rich Duby, you've been around for quite some time in the brewing industry. You got yeah. to. Um, <laughs> I guess, witnessed the first craft boom, as you were explaining earlier, in the 80s yeah. in the US. And I mean, what is how many breweries is there now? Like over 7,000 breweries? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to get an understanding or if you're able to describe for us the relationship between the rise of the craft beer industry in the US to, I guess, the relationship with the training options that have become available in the industry. Yeah. Uh, I'm first going to give you the similarity between uh, what I call the first craft beer revolution is kind of the late 80s, early 90s, and, and the one that we're going through right now. The similarity are people with tremendous amount of, uh, of heart and guts and, and passion about, about the beer industry. Uh, there, there's some people that definitely have money uh, to, uh, to, to put into the industry to willing you know, to start a brewery and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that the main difference is actually education. Okay. Uh, I, I think that uh, more and more, and that kind of circle back to what I said earlier, more and more the people start to realize that, okay, I know how to do things, but I don't know why I'm doing things. And despite the fact that there's still a gap, I'm, I'm not being, uh, again, disrespectful or being over and uh, optimistic, but you know, there's definitely still a gap of knowledge because 
there's unfortunately still some pretty bad beer out there. But less to me, there's less now than, than there used to be. And of course, it's in proportion. In the 80s, you didn't have 7,000 breweries, right? But uh, so I think that over the years, uh, what happened, the first, brewing, the first craft brewing uh, industry kind of died out simply because the beer was terrible. Okay? Uh, so that's one part of the equation. So now we have brewers that are a little bit more educated, that they understand a little bit more what they do, and they understand one thing. Quality in brewing is defined as consistency, okay? If you go to a tap room and you, you buy a beer X and it tastes XYZ, okay, and you love it, and then you come back one month later and that same brand X is totally different, you might not be able to define what is different, but you just don't like it anymore. Okay, so quality is consistency, and I think that the brewers have started to really understand that note. That is very, very important to stay consistent and to be able to become consistent. You have to know a little bit more about about what you are what you are doing. So now we have people that kind of understand a little bit this. That's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation that people might not think about, it's actually the consumer. The consumer is a little bit more educated than, than they used to be, okay? They travel more. In, in those 40 years, people travel more and experience different things uh, and, and got accustomed to different things and to appreciate different things. I often give the analogy, I don't know if you have that. I think you do. I think I saw someone I was there in Australia, a subway. Those, those, those sandwiches, okay, Subway. Well, you know, uh, 25 years ago, uh, the only bread you had was white, right? Now, when you go to a Subway, it takes you five minutes to just decide which, which bread you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have your sandwich, okay? So that's a little bit the same thing, okay? Is that the choices was very limited. So this is all you knew. And then slowly but surely, people got um, to experience through traveling or whatever, whatnot, more style and end up uh, being able to educate themselves to appreciate something different. So there's two sides to the equation. Finally, the, the, the final point I wanna make is that the brewers also realize that the consumer is more educated and the more educated the consumer will be, the better it's gonna be for them. So it's not a surprise to see everywhere tap rooms that offer uh, tastings and that the bar the, the bar staff is is much more educated into uh, explaining okay so this is a new beer that the brewer came up with and this is this this is that again to take an example from us um, every new beer that we do we have a, a staff meeting where we explain the beer uh, you know we explain which ingredient we use why we did that so that when they are bigger, they are our first line of attack. I mean, me, I can, I can produce the best beer in the world, but if the, if the bar staff is not able to understand or to explain what the beer is supposed to be, how can they push the beer, right? Okay, so, so this is very complex, but this is where the evolution uh, occurred. Brewers more educated, consumer more educated, and brewers understanding that it's to their benefit to educate the consumer even more so they can appreciate their their product. Yeah. No, it's it and I guess that's uh we've we've had the 
luxury of being able to learn from you guys actually because you know there's always been that statement that we've been five or ten years behind the american craft beer market and some people have come on the show and said it's a lot less that gap you know whatever seems to be trending in the u.s or happening in the u.s that time is 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 being reduced but i think that is what is, is important for our industry going forward is that you know we're seeing a bit of a an increase in breweries opening up i think it's like a, a brewery opening up every six days is the the stat from the iba and and i guess it's a matter of educating those backyard homebrewers thinking that they can open up a brewery and thinking that they can call it craft when you know there's diacetyl there's dms there's all these off flavors going on and and I wasn't aware that that was the reason why the first craft beer boom in the US died uh, because of quality um, and, and cowboy. I think it brewing. was a I think it was a similar story in Australia as well. But there was some really questionable products out there. And, and the other thing too, I think, was we were aping a lot of like um, established styles of beer. So um, there really wasn't an expression of an Australian beer style necessarily back then. Um, you know, Coopers have been doing it for a long time, but. I think um, it was it was all about making a German style beer or a British style beer. I think the American Second Revolution, I think, was really probably driven by Cascade as a hop, mm-hmm. yeah, which changed the whole landscape of brewing completely. And I think there's also a, a greater level of complexity now with what consumers are demanding. You know, starting a brewery and making sour beers and adding fruit to beers. You know, you really need to know what you're doing from a yeah. um, from a technical perspective to be able to deliver that with consistency, as um, Richard was saying, and avoid re-fermentation issues and, and, and dangers that are going to be out there for the consumer with bottles exploding or cans exploding. You know, you really need to have that technical expertise now to be able to um, yeah. deliver those, those yeah. beers. Mm. So the consumer became much more accustomed to uh, different styles as well, and they kind of they kind of learn they kind of learn those styles slowly but surely. You know? And now they can they can go to someone and say, "Well, I like his IPA, but I don't like his." Whereas before, and that's one one of the reasons why the, the the first craft revolution went down is because people would say, "Oh, I want to have one of those IPA that I hear about." And they taste it and they don't like it. It's not explained to them. And instead of saying that IPA I don't like, they said IPA I don't like. And then it chilled everybody. So in that first craft beer revolution, a lot of very good brewers went down the tube because they were put under that same umbrella, uh, whereas some people were pretty, pretty, uh, pretty bad. Mm. Well, that, that's great. All that content there, guys, I guess, gives the audience a bit of an understanding of what trading options are out there for them to, to I guess, formalize if uh, their, their training and, uh, sorry, their skills and experience if they're working in the industry or, or wanting to get into the industry. I, I guess what I wanted to dive into now is, you know, I've got two guests here that have been in the brewing industry, both in Australia and the US with years of experience. Want to get your insights about, I guess, the two markets and um, and where you see things going in the future. So maybe to start off with you, Richard Adamson, I'd like to get your thoughts and insights on the craft beer industry here in Australia and I guess what you see as a future outlook for it. Look, uh, it, it's, it's definitely positive. We, as I said, we are the the biggest em- employers within the, the brewing industry, when we employ over half of the people that work 
in brewing. And that's the that's the independent sector. I see continual growth. I, I I think the growth will come in regional areas probably more than anything else. And I think it'll be a lot more smaller players within the within the market. Um, I think the on the, on the upper end, it's it's fairly crowded. And I think you really have to have a good reason to exist if you're outside of if you're not servicing a market that's um, a territory. And that's why I think regional will be the the powerhouse for growth. I think you have to have a pretty strong reason to exist. I think the story of two guys talking over over a homebrew and thinking that their homebrew is better than what's out there commercially, that's probably, that, that story is probably done. Um, <laughs> really, you know, if you can't get a good beer at your local pub now, uh, a good independent beer, then there's something wrong. It, it, it's, there's so much good beer available now that your reason to exist has to be pretty compelling. Whether it's down to a particular, focusing on a particular beer style, or doing things in a very different way, there has to be a good reason to exist. So I think that's um, that's going to be a challenge for people entering the marketplace is why, why are you doing this? So that's that's one of my insights. I think there's, you know, there, there may we may even re- see a return to um, of the lager, I think as well, as, um, you know, as we're getting into more wild and wacky territories and, you know, these, um, these really hop-driven styles of beer, is, you know, I think we're, we're ready, reaching the upper limits of those. Having said that, you know, Sierra Nevada, when that first came out, that was the upper limit of what you could put in terms of dry hop. And I think we're double, triple what that is in, in dry hop now. So maybe I'm wrong on that front. But I, I think we might see a return to some um, simpler, more sessionable styles of beer too, which will, which will complement the, the wackier, creative, fruit-driven, sour, hopped beers that are out there. Yeah, there's been a, a couple other guest insights talk about uh, the craft lager sort of um, trend. It seems to be a direction. Like you said, I I think the hop stuff has been done. Um, like once again, going back to us following our big brother, the US, it's been done over there as well. And there's been a couple comments about, I think Neil Cameron mentioned it as well, yeast-driven beers is, is and, and I think, Richard Anderson, you mentioned mentioned it as well, that there seems to be, you know, an, an unexplored area there as well. Richard Doobie, uh, we talked a bit about, I guess, what you've witnessed in the US scene um, from a training and quality standpoint. Anything that you can, I guess, add to the future outlook or interesting trends that happen, that's happening over, I guess, your, your part of the world? I'm, I'm going to start by by something that Richard mentioned. It's about um, it's about that you really need to know what you want to become. And in that sense, is that people people that don't survive and actually did not survive through the COVID is because they don't they didn't really know who they were or who they wanted to become. Uh, and what I'm talking about is that you know in our town by by uh, back in Kentucky. There's a couple of very small brewery uh, that decided that, you know, this is what I want to do. Okay. I want to stay a tiny little tap room and I have a food truck coming on Friday night and I produce those beautiful beer and I have those people from the neighborhood that comes to my place and I love it that way. Okay. Uh, Whereas some other people have uh, maybe larger plan in mind and they have to get into the distribution and understanding now that you know, the gap between taproom fresh versus distribution fresh, uh, the gap is not like this. It's it's a mild wide, okay? And this is where more education is required. So 
first point is this, is that people needs to, will have to really decide uh, what they are and what they want to become. Uh, now, in terms of, of the industry in general, me, what I see is, uh, and again, Richard kind of alluded to that, uh, it's a circle back, okay? We're circling back to, to the original, more traditional styles, uh, something that, uh, you know, you can drink more than one pint w- without uh, being, sh- sorry. <laughs> hey, I, I always yeah. tick the explicit box for my episode, so you're okay. Oh, I, I got like, like this, yeah. so, but you know, so 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 you, people people are still seeking the environment and the atmosphere. They like a good beer, but they like to be in a good environment, and therefore they realize that okay, it's kind of nice to have something at ten percent alcohol, but you know. I have one glass and I and I'm dead for the night, so that's not very good. So I think that there's a circle back to. I, I don't like to tell them to to say less flavorful, uh, but you know, less less aggressive, if you will. Okay, so there's definitely a return to this. Then there's the I call that a fringe part of the industry, and we've seen it with the seltzers, the the sour to a certain extent, the smoothies. Uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think that that's the, I want to call it, this is the home brewer part of the industry that, you know, they always want to make something new. They always want to test different ingredients and see how they want to go together and that kind of stuff. So this will remain remain on, the, on that part and will keep on, keep on growing, okay? And then thirdly, it, it is a recognition that, that one of the four main ingredients that makes beer has been had been totally forgotten, and that's the yeast. Now yeast are playing with yeast, and they're and they're proud to say, "Oh, I use uh, yeast X Y Z, and I got those type of flavors." And then I did a, uh, a a dual fermentation with those two yeasts, and I got that, and so on and so forth. I see people. Uh, and as you know, Siebel is is under the umbrella of Lalaman Brewing. We see more and more people jumping onto trying with the Voss and try it at different temperature and try you know different type of yeast and so on and so forth. So to me, the in- the industry evolves in in those kind of three facet, if you will, uh, circling back. Uh, you know, you're talking about you know barrel age, for instance. Well, you know. Uh, I think it might have been one of the first barrel aids, but I did that back in 1994, okay? Uh, so, and, and now it's like, oh yeah, barrel aids, barrel aids, barrel aids, right? And then going back to, to the light lager, the nice, well-made lager. When I go to a brewery and I look at their portfolio, the first beer I take is the lowest alcohol they have, the, the, if, if they have the IBUs, the bitterness unit, the lowest one. Because then I can tell really if the brewer knows knows what what he's doing, he mm. or she's doing. Yeah, then I move point. to something that is that is more. So this is this is how I see a little bit the industry moving in which direction we're going. Yeah, great. Okay, uh, and. Rich Adamson, you worked on the IBA project group, uh, Independent Brewers Association, in regards to to training in the industry. You know, and with the development of TAFE New South Wales and getting all the government funding backing uh, for training options here in, in Australia, uh, is there still a, a focus by yourself in the IBA for greater formal training options uh, across the industry? Uh, 
Yeah, I actually, I look back at our uh, the goals I stated when I took this on in in 2019, and that was to to get certificate three across um, across all states and get the certificate four up and available by 2022. Um, I think we're we're on track to to get there. So I'm still pretty confident that we'll get the certificate three across all the states, and hopefully, certificate four will be available uh, next year, uh, as it's being it's been written now. Um, which is very pleasing to see. Uh, and I just think you know, the more pathways and, and opportunities people have to, for education, the stronger the industry will be. And we won't have a flash in the pan craft revolution this time. It's, um, it's going to stick around because we've got the focus on quality and the education to back that up. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a good point, and uh, and and I guess the the thing that drove me to wanting to do the Certificate Three in microbrewing, um, obviously the Neil Camerons, the Steve Hendos, and and Dan McCulloch sort of having them on the podcast sort of gave me this sort of urge to want to do it for myself, is because it's got such a big practical component. You know, I love the opportunities to go to a lot of the breweries and um, do a days there, and you know complement what I've been learning in the classroom. So yeah, kudos to yourself and the IBA for, for making that happen. But um, uh, yeah, and also I, I just, just on that too, yeah. I, Chris, I think I'd like to take the opportunity to thank all the, all the breweries that are um, part of the work placement component of the, of the, the TAFE course. Um, Cause I think that's, that's invaluable for you as you, your students to get out there and experience uh, working in different breweries. And it's, it's, um, you know, there's a there's a part of that too, which which is that the the breweries do get a, a good look at the students coming through the course and um, maybe get first part of the cherry if a if a, a, um, a job opportunity comes up. They've seen the students come through and they they get an idea of a, of a, of a cultural fit at the same time as well. Mm. Um, so um, yeah, thanks to thanks to them, I think it's a, an important part of the course. Maybe a good segue here, and maybe I could have left it to things worth plugging, but because there are brewery owners listening, there are people in the industry listening, mostly people that are looking at getting in the industry and starting their own brewery are the, are the audience. But for those that are listening and they want to potentially get involved with that program, um, you know, for hosting a student from the, from the TAFE program, do they just reach out to someone like yourself or TAFE New South Wales or? Oh, look, yeah, I think you get in touch with uh, myself or, um, or Dan to, to get involved. Absolutely. And look, if, if there are anyone taking on, looking to take on apprentices, get onto that apprenticeship network, make sure you qualify and then find out which tape is near, near you that is, is offering the course. Um, and look, the, more, the more trainees we get signed up, the more pressure it puts on to the other tapes around the country to, um, to offer the course as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfect. And Rich, Rich Doobie, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the impact COVID's had over in the US. Uh, you guys seem to be battling out a lot harder than what we've experienced over here in Australia, but had a lot of guests on talk about how COVID impacted the brewing industry here in Australia, but I'd like to hear your insights about over there in the US. Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take just a, a little brief moment to mention about the education first. Okay. So okay. Yep. on the education side, uh, I still remember the day, March 13, we had, uh, we had over 22 or 25 students of the, uh, on the international diploma uh, when in Chicago when we closed the, closed the, the doors. Uh, so we had to take everybody and move them to the uh, online version of the same course. 
and we have not been able to reopen since then. We are hoping for a May uh, May session, uh, but it's still a bit iffy. So everybody move on the online. Uh, and uh, while everybody was uh, was happy to say, oh, I was able to uh, learn how to knit or uh, or to start baking or uh, binging on Netflix, uh, me, I was way over my head with uh, creating new program and new offerings and new platform. And on the education side, this is what happened, a shift towards towards online. As for the industry itself, it's kind of interesting. I think it, it circled back a little bit to uh, what I said earlier, meaning that people need to know uh, who they are and what they want to become. And those who had a clear idea, they survived. The people that stick to the idea of uh, understanding that uh, despite, despite the difficulty, uh, despite obviously the volume not moving as fast or not at all than what it used to be, uh, they realized that every single drop that they were producing had to be uh, perfect. And those survived. Uh, those that could not master that, uh, they, just, they just disappeared. But people really reinvent themselves in terms of getting into faster, faster product, seltzers, for instance, okay? And, and kind of offered more uh, avenues to be able to bring their product to the consumer, either like uh, door pickup or even home delivery, that kind of stuff. And, and in certain states uh, in the United States, uh, some government became very flexible and allowed that to happen. So, uh, so, so again, people struggle, people kind of maintain their stuff. A lot of people took the opportunity to say, okay, let's, let's educate ourselves uh, more uh, because when we're going to reopen, uh, it's going to be a crazy fast pace. So this is what we saw as well. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, th those who were able to uh, maintain, maintain quality, uh, maintain their equipment and so on, they are reopening their doors and they're ready to see people coming to their tap room and be able to start, you know, Sending, uh, sending draft beer to the different accounts and so on and so forth. But it has been tough. I, I wouldn't be able to give you a number of how many closures, but you know, we certainly had a, a, a rough time. It was a rough time for, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And like I was said earlier, it's the chalk and cheese from what you guys had to uh, have experienced compared to what we've had over here in Australia. Um, uh, but I think Melbourne is probably the closest that I can reference in terms of what's happened over in the US. But thanks again, guys. I really do appreciate you taking some time out of your day to come on the podcast. Uh, before we, I guess, sign off, any closing thoughts or advice uh, that either of you would like to part ways with? Look, I think just uh, dovetailing into the, the, the challenges of, of COVID, I think we have seen more beer go into into package and, and cans so more craft breweries getting into into the market through that avenue probably less through the taps in in pubs and bars and i think maybe contracts have a lot to do with that as well with the majors having access to those taps and but you know what's coupled with producing beer and putting it into package is the technical mouse required to be able to do that on a consistent level and and provide quality to consumer 
really means that you need to be educated. So, um, you know, I think that, that those, those two things go together very tightly. If you're not measuring it, you don't know. So really understanding your, your micro, understanding dissolved oxygen, the role that plays in, in delivering a quality product and a fresh product. These things are coming more to the fore than perhaps it used to be where you could put beer in, into kegs and it was consumed fairly quickly after mm-hmm. being packaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, the, uh, again, you know, the taproom fresh versus, versus distribution fresh, you know. Uh, if I can leave you with something is that uh, never stop learning. You need to learn something new every day. And uh, the beauty at my age is that I'm not so sure if it's something new or if it's something that I forgot, but I still get the, the I still get the satisfaction of saying I learn something new every day. So, uh, you know, the day that uh, the day that somebody thinks that they know everything, uh, they rather just uh, quit because uh, we're not there yet. You know, we're getting something new every day, and there's plenty of avenues to get to get the more brewing education and brewing knowledge. Yeah, perfect. Well said. And anything else worth mentioning, uh, either of you, for shout-outs, events, maybe course offerings? Where we have the um, the Brucon coming up soon for IBA in the Gold Coast. So um, you know, as as the vaccine gets rolled out, we should be going back to travel. Um, I know we've got a little cluster outbreak um, at the moment on the on the border of Queensland, but I think that'll um, we should be able to get on top of that pretty quickly and um, look forward to Brucon in September. Yeah. As for me, the only thing I'm going to say is that well, we are hoping opening the campus uh, pretty soon in May. Uh, and in terms of event, it was announced just last week that the uh, Craft Brewers Conference will uh, uh, will be live uh, in Denver in September. So uh, we'll see you there. Perfect. All right, guys. Well, thanks again, both Richards, for coming on the Bill Me Brew podcast. Cheers. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Take care, Chris. Richard, it was a pleasure meeting you. Absolutely. You too. Take care. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Build Me A Brewery podcast. That was part three of the people and culture training and safety segment. In part four and our final episode of the segment, I meet with co-founder of Victual, which is a comprehensive streamlined platform and service for brewery owners to access in helping them implement formal safety management systems and much more in regards to risk aversion and insurance. As always, if you are liking the podcast so far, and find the content useful, please give us a follow and rating on whatever platform you are listening on. Also, follow us on all our social media handles as well as visiting our website, www.buildmeabrewery.com.au. I'll also mention to listeners that we now have a new Build Me A Brewery discussion group linked to our Facebook page. Now, this is a group of keen listeners and like-minded people discussing their brewery build plans and providing advice to others on the subject. Link to this group will be in the episode show notes. That's all for now. I'm Chris Hayton, your host, and this is the Build Me A Brewery podcast.